Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. The second psalm for our consideration tonight is the 30th psalm. It goes like this. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you God's faithful ones, and give thanks to God's holy name, for God's anger is but for a moment. God's favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Having to explain a worship series, its title and its visual representation in all the junk that we've cluttered the stage and the communion table with is probably like explaining a joke or a poem It's a welcome assist for some. It's a heavy-handed spoiler for others. (laughs) But it feels important that we debrief a bit the work that we've done here together these last several Sundays. Because it is work, this theological rehabilitation we do around here, this honest attempt to approach old themes with new energy, new gifts of the spirit of the living Christ, introducing new possibilities for parts of our hearts we feared were shut down permanently. It is spiritual calisthenics with all the stretching and strengthening and sweating that physical exercise requires. I said on the first Sunday of this series six weeks ago that one of the frequent questions I get from people emerging from the rubble of their deconstructed faith, clinging tightly to just one or two bright shreds of what they used to think they knew for sure, 
on the other side of a massive overhaul of how we think about God and the world and ourselves in God and in the world is how we are supposed to pray now. If God is not a vending machine doling out gifts to those who ask correctly, if God is not a puppet master pulling strings to guarantee certain outcomes, if God is not a scorekeeper making tally marks in a permanent record of our daily devotions, if God is always hopeful for our love, but never coercive in manipulating us to get it, how then are we to approach the practice of prayer? So much of what we have learned about that practice before now seems not useful, not honest, not good for us. We fall silent with wonder and worry. We grieve the loss of ease in prayer, even sorry to let go the cliches that once rolled off our tongues. We're tongue-tied and stomach-ached and heavy-hearted with what can feel like a loss of connection with our Creator, the one with whom we have to do. A return to the Psalms, to the prayer book, the hymnal of our ancestors in faith, is a prescription I've doled out many times to many of you. You don't have to raise your hands. You know who you are. Because the idea that each and every believer should be an expert practitioner of extemporaneous prayer, articulate and even poetic in expressions of devotion and thanksgiving, confession and supplication, this is a recent idea in Christian history. And it is not universal among our siblings in faith. Many more praying people throughout history and around the world have prayed and do pray by reciting memorized lines handed down over generations. It requires a kind of trust in the community of the human family to pray this way with the words of others. You have to believe that other people have felt what you feel, that your experiences and theirs are not so very different, even across centuries, even across continents, even across identities. Joining the traditional prayers of our ancestors is an act of solidarity with the human family. It right-sizes me helping me remember that I am big enough for God to care about me and small enough to find myself happily and equitably attached to others about whom God also cares. We're in this together, say the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer and the daily Amidah for our Jewish siblings, and the daily Salat for our Muslim siblings. Our voices rise to the heavens with the voices of our planet, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars, everything in all creation, praying all the time. Our own voices joining a chorus that has been ongoing since the Big Bang brought brightness out of empty space. This reflection gives rise to a practical suggestion, if you'll have it. 
If you have felt yourself longing for closer connection with God and have not known how to achieve it, if you have considered, as many people do, that a good place to start would be daily Bible reading, perhaps on a calendar to read through the Bible in a year, try this instead. Read the Psalms, all 150 of them, on a daily schedule, one in the morning, one in the evening, in 75 days, just two and a half months, you'd be through all of them, and then you could start over. In a year, you would read the book of Psalms almost five times. You know, there are monasteries and convents full of Benedictines where the Psalms are read aloud in a continuous cycle several times a day, every day for years, now centuries on end. The Benedictines, I'm pretty sure, are not worried about how to pray. Read regularly in this way, the prayers of our ancestors start to feel like prayers. Indeed, they become our prayers, their language and imagery, their rhythm and reason become our own. And then you stop worrying about how to talk to God because you are doing it with our ancestors and with our faith family and with the universe every day. And you enter into the crowded house of prayer where your voice is never a solo, but blended into a chorus of voices, like when we say the Lord's Prayer together here every Sunday. We pray in a crowded house. Thanks be to God. Now, it also remains true that we have inherited a tradition of speaking in our natural voices, using our own words and expressions to the deity of the universe. It is a feature of Protestant belief that each person is imbued with the capacity to approach God without mediation by tradition or institution. That's where the expectation came from, that we would all pray in our own words. And I am Protestant enough to celebrate the liberation of prayer from the prescribed words passed down by powerful people. And so in this worship series, Praying in a Crowded House, we have returned to the Psalms to seek instruction for our own compositions. What do they teach us? These old words from foreign places about how to pray now, here, in our situatedness. What this worship series has tried to make plain is that any given Psalm as a self-contained prayer with beginning, middle, and end, usually has just one mood, one mode, one point it's trying to make to God. The Psalms do not pretend to be everything everywhere all at once, the everything bagel of the human being before God. To review, we looked at Psalms of awakening meaning that some prayers are simply an expression of becoming alert to the goodness of the world God has made and saying to God that, hey, we have noticed the goodness that infuses the stuff around us. How about that? We looked at Psalms of remembering, 
meaning that some prayers are simply a recitation of something that already happened, a situation where in hindsight we can see God's helping hand. Hey, you were there, we say to God, and I think God is glad that we noticed. We looked at Psalms of crying on the premise that God cares when we're sad and is moved by our sorrow, never in a hurry for us to move on to something more sparkly. God receives us on the days we can't get out of bed, can't muster a can-do attitude, cannot find the bright side. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, says the psalmist. And when we pray our sadness, we trust that it's true. We looked at Psalms of complaint, trusting also that God is not turned off by our temper, not displeased by our frustration, anger, even rage. Even if we wish somebody serious harm, the Psalms of complaint say it's better to tell it to God than to do it ourselves. We looked at Psalms of confession, believing along with our rottenest ancestors that God does not abandon us even on our rottenest days. Everybody else might leave us here to soak in shame, but God comes near and meets our confession with compassion. Now here is where the double entendre of this crowded house comes in. For a lot of us, our lives of prayer are cluttered with a lot of, frankly, bad theology. We cannot, for example, hear confessional language without waves of shame rushing over our heads and threatening to drown us. We can't complain or express anger in our prayers because we were taught that the expression of anger is vulgar and disallowed. We're hesitant to cry out our suffering because it's unattractive to be so self-centered. And anyway, faith is supposed to bring us joy. So if we're crying, we must be doing it wrong. So now the house of prayer is crowded, not with people standing in solidarity, but with people separated by judgment and fear the voices from our past and our present that criticize and belittle and downgrade our attempts to be honest, just believing that those voices are not God's voice can be really hard. Clearing the clutter of the crowded house of our own cluttered cobwebbed spirits can seem like an impossibility. Church, I am hopeful that the time we have spent sort of streamlining our understanding of the intent of different kinds of prayer poems in the Psalms has helped clear some of that junk out and given us some room to express our lived human experiences to a God who, according to our ancestors, actually cares to hear what we're going through and what it feels like. And we're gambling in the tradition of our ancestors, that there is safety in numbers, that the plain expressions of these experiences by sharing the Psalms together will make room for the plain, uncluttered, less complicated expressions of them in our own private lives of prayer. 
In here we practice together, I'm saying, what we hope to also be able to do on our own sometimes. Which brings us finally to the Psalms around which we plan tonight's worship, number 148 and number 30, praying to celebrate, finding language for telling God about the joy that comes from a narrow escape, from a return to health after serious illness, from a victory in a hard fought battle. How could the crowded house of prayer keep us from expressions of true joy? Keep us from praying to celebrate? Well, I'd say there are at least two ways, maybe three. First, there is the serious theological problem of praising God when good things happen if we're not also ready to blame God when bad things happen. If we don't believe that God is orchestrating someone's cancer diagnosis, how can we believe that God is arranging the atomic particles of the universe so that you are healed or get a new job or find a new love or whatever it is that's bringing you such happiness right now? The theological difficulty is closely related to a socio-cultural reality that public expressions of joy are vulnerable to being smacked down by people who think you should be less happy about whatever you're happy about. How can you be joyful about passing an exam or finishing a project or getting a clean bill of health when the earthquake in Turkey, when the war in Ukraine, when the Texas legislature, when the racist policing, when the et cetera, et cetera, ad infinitum, when all the ways that tragic suffering is even right this minute, the present reality for so many more people than just you. <laughs> we know too much to be too joyful, too out loud. Brene Brown, who is our foremost authority on human emotion and its expression, says in her Atlas of the Heart that joy travels closely, always, with vulnerability. The sneaking suspicion that the joy is not real, that the joy won't last, that if we give it up by naming it out loud, someone or something will come along and pop it like a balloon, because that's how people are, because that's the way the world works. For some of us, religion has reinforced that sense of vulnerability, making us suspicious of unreserved expressions of ecstasy in prayer, in worship, in life. Unless you grew up in one of the several Baptocostal churches, you might worry that it's just too much, even somehow dangerous to clap your hands in church or shout an amen or give yourself over to the joy of the Lord. Being carried away by joy, we worry is to be avoided by seriously faithful people. So again, perhaps the biblical Psalms that articulate the deep joy of being found in God are partly there to give us permission to feel it in the first place without too much consideration for the complexities that could spoil it. Perhaps reading Psalm 30 out loud in worship gives us some language for and therefore access to the simple truth that sometimes 
for a shining moment, everything really is okay. God really is in God's heaven and all really is right with the world. Perhaps the remembered reality that the Psalms are meant for community to be prayed and sung together means that we are supposed to help each other with that. Not with the toxic positivity that is inherent in the forced credo, God is good all the time, or the oppressive insistence that God won't give you more than you can handle, or that everything happens for a reason. Fuck that. We've worked so hard to declutter our crowded house from false, forced sanguinity. Sanguininity? Sanguineness? We've worked so hard to be able to say, sometimes when it's true, that we are not okay. And still, sometimes, after our house of prayer has been decluttered, we will want to give voice to a thing that still happens once in a while, even while real suffering swirls all around. Once in a while, we get a glimpse of how the world is supposed to work, and it's working. And our own perfect little role in God's story of everything. The cardinal recovers and flies. Jimmy Carter is surrounded by family and sustained by faith. I am out of bed and here with you and all is well. And we'll want to say it out loud to God and in the presence of each other, even knowing it is not exactly the same experience that everyone here is having right now. We will risk saying it because therein lies hope. It is our testimony to each other. It's been bad for me, but now it's better. It's been cold and lonely for me, but now the warmth of a house crowded with trustworthy friends is real to me. And what kind of friend would I be if I kept that for myself? You have turned my mourning into dancing, O Lord. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Selah. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.